0: Welcome to the Stay the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest
1: is... Ian Williams, welcome to the show. Okay, thank you very much.
2: So, Ian, would you like to say a little bit about, about yourself, about your background, about Charteris? Okay, well, I'm... Uh... Currently Chairman and Chief Executive of Chartres Treasury Portfolio Managers. Um, I've been uh, a position I've held for the last 20 years. Um, prior to that, I was uh, a member of the London Stock Exchange, uh, uh, where I spent the bulk of my career as an institutional uh, gilt edge stockbroker specialising in uh, conventional and indexing gilts mainly. Um, So that's it, really. Um, At Chartris, uh, we run um, private clients. So we look after high net worth individuals. But we also run four OICs, which is probably what we're best known for. Uh, Those OICs are a UK equity income fund, uh, a UK strategic bond fund, um, a gold and precious metals fund. And global macro or global income, global equity income funds. So there are our four funds. Um, the funds themselves have quite good track records for a small boutique fund manager. I mean, for example, the bond fund last year was. Um, top or second joint top of the uh, strategic bond sector and only one of three funds last year to show a positive return when the average bond fund was down about 15%. So, um, you know, that worked worked out pretty well. Uh, A couple of years ago, the equity income fund was top of the equity income sector. Uh, The gold fund has been top mutual fund across all sectors twice in the last seven years. And the macro fund is uh, usually spends most of its time at the top of the league as well. So, um, you know, we, we're probably punching above our weight, well above it, considering the size of the firm we are. So, um, yeah, so we've sort of quite relaxed, as they say at the moment. If you've highlighted
1: the uh, your involvement in the bond market, those of us that, that have, have worked in, in the fixed income world Mm-hmm. might suggest that last year was a bit of a sort of gotter for sort of twilight of the gods moment for fixed income investors i would humbly submit that basically the game has changed now that rates rates are moving up that we're not just it's this topic of a presentation we recently gave um not just a the reversal of a 40-year bull run in interest rates but actually the reversal of a 5,000-year bull run in interest rates so what has worked for the last 40 years can't be expected to work in the same way in the future. Would you share that view?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I think the, the freak element of the last four, 30, 40 years was the idea that bonds are just a buy and hold investment. Because um, prior to that, as you point out, um, they have never, never been a good buy and hold investment. Um, obviously, if you bought bonds gilts or something when they yielded 15% and held them for a long time, they would have been a great investment. Um, but we've always taken the view that the only way you make any bonds, the only way you make any money out of the bond market is they're for trading, uh, not for buy and hold. So if you've got an actively managed fund that actively trades the, the yield curve, uh, you can make money. Uh, regardless of what stage of the interest rate cycle you're in. Um, But if you just sit there and just passively hold gilts, and as you allude to, the cycle is going to go against you, um, it's not going to work out very well. It was a disaster last year. I mean, we made money last year by – um, foreseeing that the gilt market was going to collapse. So we stayed in the ultra short gilts and uh, floating rate notes for the entire duration of the bear market. And then right at the bottom, we switched into the ultra long. So we got we got a bounce. And then as soon as we made a load of money on the, on the bounce, we just switched it back into the short end again, which is where it's staying today. And, and it'll stay there until we see another trading opportunity. So you can make money in the bond markets trading. I mean, when I was a broker, I mean, when the markets were quite volatile more than they are, apart from last year, more than they are now. um, We used to make money most of the time by trading, but you never made any money by buying and holding. So that would tend to bear out your thesis that uh, I think think people have to wake up that if they buy and hold bonds, they're they're just uh, more likely to lose money than uh, make money and that's in nominal terms and then once you allow for inflation the odds that they're going to lose money is even greater so i would tend to agree with you yeah
1: if you've, you've highlighted the, the the word inflation a colleague of mine was asking me about the performance of index linked inflation linked gilts which i've never really traded I much experience yeah. in trading in the past but my suspicion would be that i mean as, as with any other investment the su- the success of something that you buy is largely dependent on the price you pay when you buy it. And my understanding is that inflation-linked gilts have always, over the last say, couple of decades at least, been expensive because there is a core constituency within the capital markets, namely pension funds, that are obligated basically to buy them. So they never trade cheaply. Is that a fair, is that, is that a fair presumption? I mean, it, are inflation-linked bonds expensive because of a uh, basically forced buying?
2: Um, well, all gilts you could argue fit into that category. Um, when we
1: know the thing is we sorry to interrupt. We know the bond mass though for the for the fixed income instruments. Whereas, inflation link bonds seem to behave quite perversely. In other words, you would have thought an objective observer would have thought that in a, a period of high inflation, index link bonds are the place to be. But that's not ain't necessarily so, is it?
2: No, 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 it's absolutely not the case. I used to be a market maker in indexing gilts. I used to run the indexing gilbock firm, All Benson, um, and uh, I spent well, my sort of 20 years, a lot of it was actually specialised in indexing gilts. Indexing gilts are not driven by inflation per se. Easy to prove because uh, in, the, in the 20 years f- um, from uh, of deflation that we had after the dot-com boom, uh, crash, uh, indexing guilds during a period of deflation actually perform really well. They're one of the best performing assets. And the minute you got inflation back, um, they quickly became one of the worst performing assets. And the reason for that is they're not driven by inflation per se. They're driven by relative real yields. And what that means is that it depends on whatever the yield on the conventional gilt is after uh, allowing for inflation, and then index link gilts will just fit in with that. Uh, and that's what drives them, relative real yields. So last year, for example, we had a seminar a couple of years ago when we forecast the guilt market was going to collapse. We forecast inflation would come up, come higher, and we said the worst performing asset are going to be index link gilts. And people would just – couldn't believe what we were saying. And we got loads of questions about it. People said, well, what are you talking about? If, if inflation comes back, every, index link gilts is the place to be. And I said, no, if we get a bear market in gilts, index, long-dated index link gilts will go down more than long-dated conventional gilts because they have a higher volatility. And they're not driven by inflation per se. They're driven by relative real yields. And sure enough, last year, the long yield at one stage was down 75% in 10 months. And the long dated index was down 86%. So that's 86 percent wipe out of your capital due to an inflation uh, scare. Same thing happened in 94 when I was unfortunate enough to be running the index link book at the time. Um, we had an inflation scare. And again, linkers went down more than conventionals because they're more volatile. So, no, they don't absolutely you – Yeah, know, if, if you think you're going to get a period of deflation uh, and real yields re- uh, are going to potentially fall, um, indexing yields probably do okay. But uh, they're not what it says – not what people think it says on the tin.
1: And do you have a view about the, 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 the likely future for inflationary trends globally or just here in the UK, say?
2: Um, Short term, short to medium term, we think inflation is going to come down much quicker than people think. Um, I think the problem with the Federal Reserve at the moment is they're using unemployment as a uh, benchmark for what they ought to be doing. And this is a heavy lagging indicator. If you look at the more forward looking indicators, for instance, I mean, there's two indicators we would pay more attention to than unemployment, which is um, the, the inverted U.S. Treasury yield curve, which is screaming recession. And the other one is the U.S. M2 money supply, which is contracting for the first time in 40 years. So you've got two uh, indicators that are forward-looking indicators um, that are screaming slowdown. And there's a lot of anecdotal evidence now Um Things like car repossessions are suddenly going through the roof in America. Um, evictions are going through the roof. People are coming off uh, the temporary food stamp stuff that they, they've had is all ending. So, a lot of anecdotal stuff that the US economy is heading for a really uh, nasty time. And just by looking at unemployment, which is a lagging indicator, um, the danger is that the Federal Reserve. Um, and not allowing enough time for the tightening that they've already put in place to take effect. And and, and they keep looking for... Uh, the job numbers to come come down uh, or not go up as much, um, but this is a heavily lagging indicator. And someone described monetary policy years ago: it's like a brick on a on a on, on an elastic band, and you pull and pull and pull on the brick, and nothing happens, and all of a sudden it hits you in the face. And this is potentially the, the, what's going to happen to the Federal Reserve if they keep tightening. The yield curve is telling you that they're over tightening. Um, and potentially they could, they they could, and the housing market as well is another indicator which is signalling that all's not what over there. Um, so, I, I think you know they, the, the central bankers over there made a big mistake in saying that. Uh, inflation wasn't a problem, and then when it was a problem, and this is when money supply was expanding at 38% a year, and oil prices had doubled, and the central banks said, oh, there's no inflation, it's not a problem. When it obviously penny dropped that there was, oh, it's transitory, right? Now, and and at the time, uh, some of those Federal Reserve saying, oh, interest rates are going to be lower for longer. One of them was saying, well, we don't see rates rise until 2025. The same people now, a year later or 18 months later, the same rates have got to be higher for longer. And, you know, we've got to get on top of inflation. And I think if you look, if you, in, inflation potentially is going to solve itself and it's going to come right back down again. But the risk is that they, they do more damage to the U.S. economy than they need to. But then just if, if, if the yield curve in the Treasury market is correct and you do get a U.S. recession, it doesn't mean you get a global recession. You're not going to get a recession in China this year. That's going to grow at five six percent a year. You're not going to get a recession in India. That's going to grow at six percent a year on. That's virtually half the world's population. So a U.S. recession doesn't mean you get a global recession.
0: On on the one hand, with the Federal Reserve, I get quite frustrated by exactly what you've just been saying because some of the things I've I've been saying is you know yields, uh, rates are going to peak quicker than people think, and they'll they may even start talking about lowering them which is clearly crazy at the moment um but i think that's what's hap- will will happen because of exactly what you've been saying but on the other hand it gives us an advantage in terms of trading the markets and and um it, i just wonder what you felt about that i get very frustrated with it but it also if they understood the markets perfectly then we'd end up with a, a situation where perhaps that advantage would, wouldn't be there
2: Oh, yeah, but I, you have to think, sort of wearing a taxpayer hat or a voter hat, that the current calibre of central bankers, and not just in the US, over at the Bank of England as well, is nothing, absolutely nothing up to the calibre of uh, central bankers in previous regimes.
0: Oh, definitely, but that's I mean, um, that's a different hat though, isn't it? It's a bit oh, yeah. like politics. It's, it depends what how you're viewing the market as an individual or as somebody who's... Who's trading and investing?
2: Yeah, but, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, central. What you're actually saying, if I understand you correctly, is that central banking competence uh, creates more opportunities to make money. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, I would agree. Well, absolutely. Um, um, as frustrating
0: but... as it is, it <laughs> does actually create opportunities. Because
2: yeah, no, yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. But I still prefer to have Mervyn King as the governor of the Bank of England doing a doing a decent job. You
0: know, well, it's funny because I, interestingly, you, you're right. Some are better than others, but they all seem to not get it right, and they all seem to cause problems of some kind. It's just whether they cause big problems or, or small problems. But um, circling back to what you were saying about your outperformance, because I'm, I'm very interested to know. Um, is it what do you attribute your outperformance to because you're saying you're punching above your weight how how does that manifest itself um is it your experience or do you have different models, or how do you make decisions
2: we, we we tend to we use a lot of technical analysis we use a lot of uh, which is almost unique to charter is we use cycle analysis. And that's not not talking about economic cycles. I'm talking about stock market cycles and bond market cycles, which has quite a big following in the States. In America, a lot of the big American investors um, look at market cycles. And hardly anybody over here looks at it, which, again, uh, is fine. Because the, if, we're, if, if that gives us an edge, the last thing we want is everybody else looking at them. But um, the cycles uh, that we identified have enabled us uh, to um uh outperform i think because it's not like we don't look at economics and it's not like we don't look at the other factors that most of the, our competitors look at but we look at cycle analysis as well and and to my knowledge virtually no one else in the uk looks at this stuff
0: well it's it's actually again that's a very interesting point that um so many people have different perspectives on on how the market works and how it operates. So some people say charts don't work and they're a waste of time and it's only fundamentals. And some people say fundamentals is a waste of time and it's only charts and some people use a combination. And it's really down to the individual. But um, I, I think this, there is a lot of cycle analysis out there. There's also lots of different types of analysis. Oh, nice. and, and it's really just down to what what you what works for you what work you have put in I mean just out I mean I'm a technical analyst have been um since my initial uh, foray into the markets very long time ago I used to teach at the city university technical analysis and and, yeah. and so um I've seen all the different forms and and what type of cycle analysis do you use do you use GAN or do you just use simple time time analysis
2: well, both. We, we do use Gann, actually. But, um, I mean, Gann's great, one of Gann's great quotes. I think it was Gann, or no, it might have been someone else. He said, uh, I think it was Joe Granville, actually. He's been interviewed on CNBC, and he had this young, uh, young reporter saying, oh, what's your view of the economy, Mr. Granville? And he said, well, why are you asking me about the economy? You don't buy and sell the economy, you buy and sell the market. Yeah, that's a
0: good, very good one. Yeah.
2: And she said, well, aren't they the same thing? And he <laughs> said, no, no, dear, they're not. He said that the market is about nine to 12 months in front of the economy.
0: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it's, that's, um, yeah, anyone who looks at charts would, would completely yeah. understand
2: that. So, um, and, and that's why you doing your technical analysis will have an edge over some economists. Uh, just looking at economic numbers because he's so far behind the curve all the time. The market by the time he's woken up to what's happened, the market's already moved.
0: Yeah, I mean if you look at the Fedwatch tool which basically says that rates are going to top out around 5%, that means we had Fed you know Governor Powell saying that yesterday that that he's going to be raising interest rates and everyone got really excited, and markets have gone down a lot and people are panicked, but if you look at the curve it doesn't look like rates are going to go much above 5% and then they're going to go down so or, or exactly. at least they're going to stabilize around 5 so that means one more and we're done and the markets are going to just take off because they're going to yeah. really like
2: that exactly the the all this tough talk hardly makes any difference every time they 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 say something it, the, the treasury market just ignores it Um, You have seen a bit of movement in yields, but that wasn't on the back of – in the last month, that wasn't on the back of what Federal Reserve governors have been saying. That was on the back of non-farm payroll coming out half a million jobs Mm -hmm. Um, and um, some slightly higher than uh, um, inflation figures. But again, you know, the non farm pay, unemployment is is the most lagging indicator of all. And a lot of those jobs are part time jobs. And I don't know, and no one can, uh, I can have a feeling about this, but I have a sneaking feeling that at some stage in the future, and it won't be for quite a long time. That, that figure will get revised, that jobs figure will get revised down quite a big way because they'll have found out that it was subject to an extremely faulty seasonal adjustment. You've got to be really careful. That's the other problem with trading on, quote, fundamentals, is a lot of these statistics that come out of government departments have all been monkeyed around with.
0: Well, as you say, with that, um, just sp- I won't mention the names of the economists who had, who made these predictions. But when I was working um, for an uh, an institutional uh, investment bank during go on,
1: Paul, fr- spill your guts. No, 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 no. It's not, it's not, name the no, guilty do that. people. But
0: but anyway, we, during the financial crisis, when it was all kicking oh. off, when you know, when we're in the depths of it, they were still unbelievably looking at unemployment numbers and saying oh there's not going to be a recession because these these numbers are looking really good and mm-hmm. I was just like I, I can't believe what you're saying you know the, the, the markets were collapsing um, banks were, were were going bust uh, it was the the um, short-term interest rate futures mm-hmm. market was a mess because people banks wouldn't lend to each other and and there's just happily merrily looking at their single metric saying well you know unemployment looks fine and there isn't a recession and and there you go so uh, and then when it happens it's like oh yeah actually i mean wasn't isn't it the, B, is it the bis that does the that tells yeah. us whether the market's gone into recession and it it's it's said something like 18 months afterwards or two years later, they said, oh, actually, yeah, well, that's when we went into recession. Well, that's when the US went into recession. It's well, lagging beyond belief.
2: Exactly right. I mean, using unemployment to, to, to uh, as a core policy tool is like driving a car, look, looking through the rear view mirror all the time and then yeah. wondering why the car crashes. Well, I'm,
0: I love the fact that you've just said that because people use that quote from Warren Buffett to say that's why charts don't work. He's because you're looking at the rear view mirror at the price action, but that's not actually, I don't, I mean, he doesn't use charts. Uh, and as well, yeah. always said that when he looks at a chart, he wants to buy. And if he turns it around the other way, he still wants to buy. And that therefore he, he doesn't, doesn't use them. And fair enough. It goes back to what we were saying before about everybody has their own methods and that's, that's fine. Um, but people use that as a specific uh, sort uh, of uh, mm. rebuttal to using technical analysis because he uh, said that, and
2: that's completely wrong. I th- well, I think it's wrong as well because um, uh, a chart, if you look at a daily chart today, is bang up to date, right? If you look at the uh, uh, unemployment numbers, um, they're at least a month out of date because that's how long it takes a Bureau of Labour um, to draw the statistics, and it, it, it's entirely backward-looking. Um, so the fundamentals are far more backward looking than charts, and
0: um yeah yeah i, the, I, I agree totally
1: um isn't, isn't there a problem here though that we, we, we everybody has such absurdly high expectations of central bankers and if you take say the fed so the fed has a dual mandate sort of low inflation and, and full employment and all they've got to do for to try and tweak those is, is move interest rates up and down the idea that i said so the, the whole premise that any anybody can be intelligent enough to work out how to manipulate the economy through interest rates to achieve those. It, that's just it's it's a it's a fantasy world. So we, everyone has these absurd expectations, but no one ever questions it. Yeah.
2: You know, um, and again, if you go back to the sort of era of Mervyn King and some of the other some of the American central bankers who are. Uh, probably a higher caliber than the ones we got today.
1: Well, F- um, Volcker was the last to raise interest rates.
2: Oh, yeah. But, I mean, a lot of people didn't yes. like Alan Greenspan, but he, he, he knew what he was doing uh, far more than the current crop of uh, mm. Yellen and Powell and stuff. Um, but <coughs> the, what was going to say, is, I mean, it's a bit, you know, I think someone described interest rates as the as, as equivalent of a one-club golfer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, uh, so, but, yeah, I mean, it's all tied in with, don't forget, you, you need the government to be pursuing various fiscal and sensible mon- uh, policies as well. It's not all down to the central bank. But the other difference was, is that, You didn't get these central banks on TV every day giving interviews. You never used to hear anything out of the Bank of England from one month to another. And quite frankly, the the situation was a lot better. You know, they got obsessed with this thing that they got to give guidance to the markets. And the problem is it's all very well if they were giving accurate guidance. But for the last year or two, most of their guidance has been inaccurate. So they just and anybody who listens to them. If you were a bond investor last year and you listen to these Fed governors saying there's no inflation, anybody who thinks there's inflation doesn't know what they're talking about. You straight away you think, oh well, you know, buying a U.S. Treasury bond on one percent yield or two percent yield, I'm not going to come to too much harm. And you know, likewise in the gilt market.
1: Then you have and the to- worst year for bonds in a century.
2: Exactly, and that's what you get for listening to central banks. Mm, yeah, people it's- should. People should look at the situation and make their own minds up, not listen to these people. Absolutely. Um, because it's, it's all very well if they get it right. But the track record of the last few years is they don't get it right and they get it ridiculously wrong. And then investors who follow them and hang on every word they say end up losing money. End of story.
0: And there are some people who think that they are purposely doing it, which I don't I don't believe that. I don't believe that they're purposely trying to make the markets move in a way that, that causes people to lose money. It's just that that's that's the nature of the markets itself. It's the nature of, of information in the financial markets that takes um, a while for when you first start to work out that you can't use the news flow to trade because it does it just doesn't work like that. It's a filter. Yeah, it it's has- a filtered system.
2: Well, you, you you studied the random walk theory. Um, it's the biggest lot of nonsense ever perpetuated. Absolutely. Per- perpetuated yeah. by two academics who probably never traded anything in their life, who come out with this theory that every single move in the market is random. Yeah. Well, if it was random, there's no such thing as underlying trend. There's no such thing as a, as, a, as a stock market cycle because you can't have an underlying trend if, if, if the market moves are totally random. Um, you, you can't have uh, a market being technically overbought or technically oversold. You can't have a cycle. Well, uh, we've identified, you know, there's loads of stock market cycles that gan There was a, a serious money-making individual, he identified cycles and made lots of money. The people who claim the, the random walk never made it like my, the average city economist. I, I've worked with loads of them over the years and I've never seen one of them successfully make money dealing for themselves.
0: Yeah. That's uh that's my um, experience as well. And, and that, that's why I think it's really interesting that there are people out there who use, economics in a completely different way. And those people usually have skin in the game and risk. And they, they, they've they learned that the, the, the rules as they are taught or the information that's taught at universities and, and wherever, A-level a- economics or whatever it might be, it just doesn't work. And we've had a guest on the show um, who will be coming on again. He's just completing a book. His name's Akhil Patel. And he explains why economics has been corrupted and it seems like nobody seems to have cottoned on to this and it's it's for me it's an absolutely fascinating discovery that it's not just that they aren't properly educated they're purposely not properly educated and then we let these people run the country and run the economic you know um models that that they then make decisions on and then everybody's scratching their heads as to how things go wrong i mean it's it is just
2: totally insane yeah, I mean, I used to work uh, a big bang. I was working for a Guilded stockbroker, and it got taken over by a big multinational bank. And then we uh, ended up from a sort of working in a little room with about six or six of us. We ended up in this great big four hundred sort of seat dealing room, amongst all the foreign exchange dealers and bullion dealers and and everybody else all, all lumped in one room, and uh, the economists and. It's noticeable that the, the ones who made the most money trading uh, were usually the ones with the lowest academic qualifications. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. were classic East End, um, Baraboy. Baraboy type traders yeah. who had a nose. They just had a nose for making money and might not have had any O levels or A levels or certainly didn't have a degree. Um, but they would just – you could put them down, and they just had a natural feel for it. Yeah. Um, and, but, and then you get uh, graduate trainees with their first-class honors degree in economics, and you put them on the same desk, and you say, here you are. Here's an open sheet of paper. We're, we're going to start you off doing paper trading which is what we used to do with the trainees. There's a street paper, you know, not real trades, but you have to put them in to the computer. They're not going to be activated. And then at the end of that, you can buy and sell whatever you want. You can go long, short, long gold, short dollar yen. Do whatever you like. You just got to make money. And 19 out of 20 uh, just couldn't do it. They couldn't hack it.
1: So isn't it isn't it ironic that if you want an entry-level job in a investment bank, environment now you need at the very least a degree and if not a postgraduate degree
2: oh yeah but then that's uh that's not guaranteed you know all you're all you're doing is it, from my experience having worked with a lot of these guys uh, that don't have degrees um you're working uh, you're cutting off a huge array of money-making talent um who would who, who would probably do i mean the success in a trading job, at the end of the day, is how much money you make. Mm. It's not what sort of report you can write at the end of the month to justify how much money you've lost and how eloquently you can explain it away. Yeah. Uh, trade, you know. I mean, I, you know, we probably, or I personally, probably come up the hard way because the the toughest. I mean, I've been a market maker. That's that's fairly tough because you've got a d- daily P&L and you have no uh, control over your position. So you have a lot. So you might even if you get the market right, you can still end up losing money because you're going to have involuntary positions that you didn't want and couldn't get rid of. Um, so market making is quite a tough game, especially in something like index link, where there's no underlying liquidity or hedge for it. So that's the tough game. But proprietary trading is pretty tough as well. I've, been, I've done that for a few years. And, you know, you can get a job and they can let you, you can trade whatever you like, but you've got to make money. You know, no, uh, it's not about, oh, well, you know, the market's gone down 10%, but I've done a really good job because I've only lost 8%. Not interested. If you lost 8%, you probably lose your job,
0: you know. So, what was your uh, introduction to markets? Because we, we jumped into the point where you were uh, trading gilts, but yeah, w- um, let's go back a little bit. What how what got you interested?
2: Um, I just uh, I started off when I you know uh, started off working for the civil service for a couple of years and got bored with that and wanted a bit more excitement and. Um, Got a job with a stockbroker and then uh, started off in uh, private clients. And then I thought that was, um, you know, at the time, a bit small beer. And um, the, the big excitement in those, the, the, the big market in the old London Stock Exchange uh, was the gilt market. I mean, that's where all the big, big tickets were written, you know. So private clients, stockbrokers were doing, say, an ordering 300 shares or something. Um, institutional equity brokers were doing orders in I don't know 25,000 shell uh, the guilt brokers were doing orders in 5 and 10 million tickets under much more loads of liquidity um, quite vol- vol- when the interest rates were sort of 12, 13, 14% the markets were very used to go up and down 2 or 3% a day um, and it was a, it was a fantastic market and it was exciting and every day was different and you never got bored and uh, that's really I, interesting a you a Oh, sorry. So, I don't. I, I didn't mean to so, talk over you there. So, so to me, it was probably driven not so much by how much money you could make. Although in the guild market, it did tend to, the gilt brokers did tend to make more than the equity brokers, and the equity brokers used to make more than the private client brokers. But it was more, I suppose, the adrenaline, the excitement of the market. It was a really fun time to be in the guild market, and loads, of, loads of uh, stuff going on, and. Um, so it's probably driven by he uh, never got bored, uh, adrenaline, and uh, it was it was just excitement, I suppose, as much as the money making.
1: As- asking people why they go into to the city is it reminds me of um, a piece I think I read in the the Sunday Times magazine in the late eighties before I before I joined the joined the job market, and it was uh, an account of the the milk round, an account of I think it was a Cambridge. Um, undergraduate, final year undergraduate, is interviewing with um, Goldman Sachs, and at the end of the interview, they they said they asked him, "So why do you wanna why do you wanna work for us?" And sort of after a bit of toing and froing and sort of you know thumb twiddling and looking at his shoes, he says, "Well, I guess there is the money." <laughs> and then the, the 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 Goldman the Goldman interviewers sort of look at each other and sort of smile and go, "Yeah, there's there's basically two groups that make as much as us. There's us and there's the Rolling Stones." <laughs> which <laughs> I always quite like as an anecdote, but I don't know whether it's remotely truthful or not.
2: But was that a right answer to get it in the job, though?
1: <laughs> well, I, I mean, because I, I was having this discussion yesterday with a, with a friend, and I was saying, because I, I started working in 91, um, sort of semi-involuntarily working for the Japanese, working for Japanese banks, as bond salesman. And I'd done in, I hadn't done enough due diligence to realize I was barking up the wrong tree and was destined for absolute failure. But I had done enough diligence to work out that basically as a salesperson for a Japanese bank, the pecking order of priorities was different from the from working, say, for a Goldman Sachs. So I said, well, when they said, for example, you know, who do you really work for? Whose interest do you represent? I said, well, first it's the bank, and then it's the bank's clients, and then this is any money left in the trough, then I suppose it's a little old me. Whereas I suspect the correct answer then and now, if you're interviewing at someone like Goldman Sachs's, Whose interest do you serve? The answers are, respectively, me, 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 and if there's any left, you.
2: Yeah, I mean...
1: uh... So the the whole subject of fiduciary obligation is is it's a conversation I, I dare say we could have for, for ages one of the the things i know paul has recommended in the past as a media pick i don't know if you've seen it but i was i've just finished watching it the last few days is the the documentary about madoff on netflix yeah uh, and the one thing i mean so much of that is just appalling in in every every possible sense but the the, the fact that the sec was basically asleep at the wheel Maybe no surprise to people who you know how markets operate or how regulators operate, but that that's fairly damning. But I think the the, the icing on the cake is, and I, well, Paul, do you want to explain? So you can probably articulate it better than more, better than I can. Uh,
0: I don't. I doubt there's anything I can articulate better than you, Tim. Go go for it.
1: So basically, the you, you have you have so the Ponzi scheme blows up after however many years, and then you have a trustee appointed to basically you know uh, pay out the spoils, whatever spoils can be recovered. And quite astonishing, I don't know if you were aware of this, but quite astonishingly, the trustee went after basically the most long standing clients oh, yeah, of Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they're, and, they're, ra- they're, and, ra- and raided them to pay off the, the more recent guys, including the institutions who I cannot believe in a million years were exactly blameless or innocent in this whole enterprise. I don't
2: know. I, don't know, I, don't know, I don't know. I knew that. I mean, uh, they went uh, I mean, if you were an investor on day one, and you were getting your fifteen percent a year for five years, um, and then you ceased to be an investor and took your money. And that they were coming after you because they were saying, "Well, that fifteen percent you were getting was effectively stolen money."
0: Yeah, but it but that's outrageous because then what they made happen was the the let's say that was an old lady who'd put her her money okay. into the Madoff fund in good faith. And then or she inherited
1: di- it from a from parents
0: yeah so then then and then she died and then then that that debt would then move over it shouldn't do, but it moved over to the family and the families had to pay it, and it's just unbelievable. I mean I, I don't even think that is that's a thing. that's not a legal thing in terms of if if some individual borrows money from a bank and then Sadly, dies, that debt isn't shared around the family. That debt d- ends there. That's why they make you pay insurance. Well, is so, there uh, something
1: almost biblical to this, which is the sins of the fathers shouldn't be visited on the sons? That, you know, a, a debt obligation basically dies with the debtor.
0: So, yeah, but, but the fact that they did it, it was just, I, I, like you, Tim, I was, my jaw was on the floor that they did that. I just thought it's incredible.
2: No, but legally, the sort of, you can see where the legal argument comes from. But, I mean, again, okay, ultimately, who's, who should be blamed? Do you blame Bernie Madoff or do you blame the uh, United States regulators for allowing a firm like Bernie Madoff to be their own custodian and administrator? Well, one of, well
1: I think I'm correct. I think J.P. Morgan may well have been involved and they got off basically scot-free. And I noticed this is the same J.P. Morgan that's now... Wriggling, wriggling like a very wriggly thing on the end of a wriggly line, with its exposure to Epstein. And I uh, was saying to some colleagues yesterday, the one thing you don't want to see in a press release is your bank's exposure to quote underage teenage sex slaves unquote, because that's what's happening now, and it's it's yeah. not optically, it's not a good look.
3: No, no,
2: but you know, again, but g- going back to Bernie Madoff. Um, you have to question why a regulator allowed him to be his own custodian and his own administrator. Yeah, I mean, th- there's, there was obviously I mean, all if red he had flags. An external, yeah, if, if he, I mean, we we look after private client money, but our uh, we have an external custodian uh, who's completely independent of us. Well, that's probably, the a li-
1: in, the, in the UK, that's probably a legal requirement for anyone managing a, a, a non-regulated fund, I, I suspect.
2: You, it, um, there's no, there's no uh,
1: option. I no, don't, and uh, unless uh, you happen to it, be a bank. Because I mean, I yeah. don't know about charges, but in my own business, we're not, we're not authorised to hold client money, so it's, it's academic. It's, we have to use a third party custodian. Well,
2: we, we do have a permission, but we choose not to, to hold client money. We choose not yeah. to use it because it's a lot easier um, to outsource it to someone else and then take all the responsibility. Sure. And also, we can point to the client and say, look, you know there's um, no Bernie Madoff here, all um, all uh, all your assets are held by an independent custodian who has a direct fiduciary duty to you uh, to look after your assets. And all we do is manage them. It's easier for us. Um, it's more, it's better for the clients because it, it provides a safeguard for the clients. Um, but in America, um, you know, you, you can set up an investment manager and be your own custodian, which is just to me is, you know, if you want to set up a Ponzi scheme, that's that's the first requirement, isn't it? To be your own custodian and, and
0: administrator. Is, is that now? Is that still now you can do that?
2: Well, there's still, you know, there's this program on CNBC called American Greed. and <laughs> these, these, these <laughs> pos- What's that about? <laughs> well, it's about all these Americans <laughs> who are scamming money out of other Americans, basically. Um, but it, it, all these Ponzi schemes are still going on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and uh, the, the the people who are perpetuating them um, are um, permanently ahead of the regulator, and the you know, regulators uh, don't seem to find out about them until someone tells the regulator what's going on. Um, so. It, You know, it's uh, but you you started off the conversation on incompetent central bankers, um, and uh, we've ended up talking about incompetent regulators. So it's uh, again, it's it seems to be a trend amongst all public servants. It doesn't matter whether they're in the Bank of England or SCA or whatever or um, Foreign Office. The standards of individual don't seem to be as high as they used to be. Mm. Maybe that's just me getting old and sort of looking back and saying, you know, I'm sure we had higher caliber public servants before than what we've got today.
1: You, you um, talk about the capacity of Americans and, and people in general to be scammed and to, to be credulous. It reminds me of, I think, the finest line from the, from the movie Wall Street, which is, needless to say, by Michael Douglas, by Gordon Gecko, says, a fool and his money are lucky enough to get together in the first place.
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly yeah and uh so um
0: so going back to your trading i was i was yeah. very interested in in uh first of all you're saying that index linked bonds do worse during inflation and that yeah. uh, and and so i was well, just i was just imagining a chart of index index linked bonds um doing worse and going down by 83 percent i think or uh, as yeah. opposed to 70-something or
2: 60-something. Yeah. 86% was yeah. the worst in 10 months against 75% in the comm- long dated conventional guilt. So would you spread trade that or would you short oh, yeah. it? That's what, that's what I used to do. That's how I used to make... That was my main trade As a, when I was doing proprietary trading was just arbitraging you know, between conventional and indexing gilts Because it, it was actually... It, it, although it goes back to your saying about... People are not understanding the market. Um, if you do get your head around it, it's quite easy to make. It's one of the easiest ways to make money, actually, in the gilt market is arbitrage between conventionals and index link. Because they, they trade with a lag, or they used to when I did it. So the conventionals were move first, and the index link were would moving would move in line. So you, didn't, you, didn't, you almost, when I was doing it, you didn't need to have a view on the market. You just come in, see, wait for something to happen in the conventional market. Say the conventional market went up five points or something. Then you just go and buy some index-link deals or short the conventional futures and buy some linkers. And how, then a few days later, they'd catch up.
1: Just, I mean, on, just on a technical note, though, just how back how far back would your data set go in terms of thinking when things would mean revert? Would um, you be going back years, decades?
2: I didn't have didn't have any data, data, yeah. data set. We just used to come in and have, you have to develop a nose for for the market because it doesn't always work. Yeah, um, but it worked more often than it didn't work. I, um, I
0: noticed one of those um, with the gold market moving with euro dollar. Uh, yeah. there there would be this. It was a bit quicker it was a few minutes but there would be a few minutes delay between what gold did and euro dollar and it was just this amazing sort of it's like you're seeing the future and like you say it doesn't work 100% of the time but it worked enough for it to be a fantastic intermarket relationship but obviously that that relationship is is a bit more tenuous compared to the one that you're you're talking about because obviously they should move a little bit more in in lockstep um, but but there seems there are lots of these intermarket relationships that, that can provide some great insight into into the way that the markets are going to move.
2: Well, that's one of the uh, things that we follow as well, which a lot of people, again, there's a very good book by a guy called John Murphy called, you probably read it, the Intermarket Relationships.
0: Intermarket Analysis, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Really, and that that couple—I mean, the big one in there—and he's got the most reliable. Is the inverse relationship between bonds and commodities? Yeah, I mean, he's got got a whole chapter, maybe even two chapters on that. And out of all the different various asset classes, that's the one with the with the most reliable uh, inverse relationship. And it's logical in a way because if you get a big rise in oil prices or big rise in copper prices, it's signaling the inflations probably in the system, in the system and then surprise surprise you get a big rise in bond yields as well um, but the commodities tend to lead the bond markets it's not the other way around you you can you can get an insight into the, where the bond markets are going by looking at commodity markets but you can't get you can't look at the gilt market and get an insight into where the oil price or the copper price is going
0: yeah that and that makes so, sense because it's a demand driven yeah um and so and going back to what we were saying earlier as we as it stands today the way commodities have come off if you look at the way natural gas and oil and all all these other you've got uh precious metals are trying to bubble up but they're, they're just holding at the moment but base metals have have come down a lot and that plays into what we were talking about in terms of the u.s interest rate cycle and where it might peak it it feels like the market is saying the demand is is sort of slipping away a little bit here, and the Fed are just talking a completely different story.
2: Well, they're, they're they're out of date. They're, they're, again, they were behind the curve on inflation. Now they're behind the curve on deflation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is yeah. You, know, you get you start you know going to get into arguments with Keynesian and monetarist economics. Um, but the, the, this Fed and the Bank of England is now largely a Keynesian, dom- and the Treasury in the UK, very largely dominated by Keynesian economics, which, which uh, has, is, is the, one of the main reasons for this overemphasis on unemployment numbers. Um, and things like the, the shrinkage in the money supply. Well, you go back to Janet Yellen. Uh, When the money supply um, was growing, M2 money supply was growing at 38% a year. Oil prices had doubled. It was screaming inflation. You didn't need to be, um, you know, an Albert Einstein to predict you're going to get inflation. But they, particularly Janet Yellen, just refuses to accept that there's any linkage at all with an expansion in the money supply and the future rate of inflation. They just refuse to accept there's any link at all. So it's a uh, it, it's uh, it's an academic sort of approach that is you know that they just refuse. I mean, you know, any any schoolboy knows if the government prints money like confetti, you get inflation. I mean, it's happened since the days of the Romans, currency debasement. But you have these academics in power who've got themselves chairman of central banks and head of the treasury who just refused to accept this. So that's one of the reasons their forecasting goes wrong.
0: Where are you at the moment, Tim, with, with this? Cause, um, you, you were looking at copper and, and, um, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll just let you explain it.
1: I mean, from our, from our perspective, we, we, we felt, and I welcome in views. we felt that the, the commodities sector per se is Ragingly cheap against any other part of the stock market, and within the commodity complex, precious metals are precious metals miners are themselves cheap relative to the rest of the the, the commodity sector. So, yes. by by wow. any number of reasons, I mean we've been allocating to to things like bullion and, and precious metals miners for about twenty years. I, I I've been doing that as a manager for about the last twenty years. And in all of that time, I don't think I've ever been more positive. A because the valuation argument is pretty compelling. Though, as if you buy stuff cheaply, um, you should do pretty well. But also the uh, some of these factors I I'd call fundamentals. The 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 major one being, um, from the central bank perspective, that the um the world gold council who who's clearly has an axe to grind who clearly has skin in the game here but they uh, they pointed out in january that that central banks bought more gold last year than in any year since i think it was 1967 so they seem to be gearing up for 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 something well, i'll leave it for the listener to decide what that might be okay, so yep. the 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 confluence of basically sort of big picture flow arguments but also Quite compelling valuations leaves me being for the medium term very very bullish on gold and silver first, and then the rest of the commodity sector afterwards.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, we've um, we did a seminar using some cycle analysis, and our cycle analysis points to a major commodity uh, upswing. Over the next two, three, four years, that it's due to peak around 2026, 2027. It's an 18-year cycle. So if you take, um, say, the S and P ratio, uh, S and P to the, I don't know, any commodity index. Say Bloomberg Bloomberg Commodities Index, or something like that. Goldman Sachs, any, it doesn't matter which one you use. You'll see that every 18 years or so, you get a major spike in commodities. and the next major spike's due in the next three or four years. So we would, we would have some cycle analysis to back up your thoughts on that. Um, and that's all commodities. Um, then you uh, have an equity cycle. 10-year equity cycle, where it usually shows that most of the money in the equity market is made in the middle of the decade and most of the crashes come along in the autumn of the decade. So again, it points to very positive equity markets so over the next three or four years. So if you're going to have a very strong commodity market for three or four years and a very strong equity market in three or four years, that points you and me in exactly the same place. Things like BHP, Billiton, Rio, Tinto, zinc all the big metal miners. And then people say, well, okay, is there any fundamental reason why you should buy these shares? Well, there's something called the green transition, which means that um, you, it takes four times as much copper to build an electric car as a petrol car. So where's all the copper going to come from? Because yeah. you can't possibly change over, uh, in the next few years all the petrol cars and diesel cars to ele- electric cars without rapidly using up all available supplies of copper there just isn't enough and wind farms as well you have a look at a wind farm those um uh, the blades of the of, of 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 the turbines are almost solid copper so really? the, oh yes it's ab- absolutely a gargantuan amount of copper mm-hmm. to make a, a a wind terminal um and again, if, if they're going to have all this stuff, unlike solar panels, whereas if, if the whole world going to go to solar panels, you're going to need quite a lot of silver, you
0: know. Well, um, it's, so it's, so it's also storing, electri- uh, you know, power. Batteries, yeah, Because the, the generators aren't allowed, the, the, the power mm-hmm. delivery companies aren't mm-hmm. actually allowed to store it amazingly, which so, I, I don't so really understand the logic of so, that. Maybe someone so, can
2: explain it. So we've got quite a nice uh, coming together of technicals, cycle analysis, which point to really quite huge uh, moves in in commodity markets over the next three or four years, huge moves in equity markets over the next three or four years. Um, And it fits in nicely with a story about um, the the, um, decarbonisation agenda. And so people can look at it and and they can sort of. Explain away why you might get a big bull market. It's not just a question of looking at some cycles on a graph. And people say, "Well, maybe this time the cycle is not going to work, or maybe it's different this time around. Well, maybe it is, but um, at least you can point to some fundamental uh, what's going on in the world that would actually cause some of these metals to go up and go up quite a lot because once you you, once you you saw what happened the nickel price once the shortage developed on the London nickel market it went from $20,000 a ton to $100,000 a ton in three days
0: yeah it was amazing absolutely you get,
2: you, you get someone short of this uh, stuff and can't deliver it into the into the delivery month or so there's no limit on the upside I mean it, there is a limit on the downside silver's not going to go to zero you're never going to get free gold or free zero or free silver um, but there's no limit to how high this stuff can go and if you get a shortage and the whole world wants it um, you know the, 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 the I agree with you. The reward risk on all this stuff is heavily asymmetric towards uh, making money rather than not making. And you're looking at these big mining companies uh, that are selling on forward PEs of five and six. They're on dividend yields of eight and nine. They're virtually being given up. So our equity fund is absolutely full of all these mining stocks. Um, With regard to the gold shares, there and silver shares, they're in our gold fund. Um, I agree with you. I think, if anything, they're even cheaper. Some of these are on forward P's of ones and twos. Um, But it's a a completely unloved sector. Um, The problem with the gold shares at the moment as opposed, well, it might even apply to the big mining stocks in the UK. Um, If you look at the gold market, uh, you're absolutely right that the big buyers are Asian central banks. There's a huge one in there that's bigger than all of them, which I guess is China. Now, that's possibly related to um, Russia and China and the BRICs all setting up their own separate monetary system that would be potentially gold-backed. So the buying uh, for gold by Asian central banks in advance of an, an alternative to the US dollar is probably for geopolitical reasons as much as economic reasons. Silver has a completely different demand uh, uh, supply, Um, but silver has been draining out the London Metal Exchange. All the stocks of silver are virtually gone, Um, but that's all apparently been going to India. Indian private investors all buy now, so then a different. uh, sort of source of buying. And then if you look at the gold and silver mining shares, they're mostly bought by American investors and Canadian investors. They dominate the space. Last year, your average American investor had an absolute horror show. Um, if he didn't lose 30, 40% of his money in the bond market, he lost 40, 50, 60% in these tech shares. So the US investor is in no mood to take on any risk at the moment, anything that is even perceived to be risky, all they want to do is put their money in a two-year treasury bond on 4.8%, and they just don't want to. They don't want to play in anything at the moment because they lost so much money last year. So, with 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 the with the gold share market, you probably need uh, it needs a time uh, for the investors to sort of recover their um, willingness to take on a bit of risk, but it will come. But if the gold price continues to go up and the American investors are still uh, scared of taking on any risk again after last year. Um, then the then the corporates, uh, the, the cor- which often happens at the bottom of bear markets, the investors are too scared to participate. But the but the trade comes in, so you get big buying. Uh, big gold companies will start buying medium-sized gold companies, and that's what you're starting to see. Newmont is trying to buy Newcrest in Australia. Um, Newmont's a, a giant of the space, but Newcrest is 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 a big company as well. So you know, so you're going to get corporate activity because the gold. The, if the investors don't want to play, it's still if the shares are underlyingly cheap, um, then the trade will buy them.
0: What's your view on um, tech versus the uh, traditional markets? Do you think tech is the the cycle for that is over and they're going to underperform, yes. or do you think there's more to come?
2: I think mainly uh, 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 big tech is. You've probably seen, you know, the big money you're going to be make. I mean. We still think that sector's overvalued. I mean, we said at the time, how can Apple, when it had a $3 trillion market cap, uh, be worth more than the entire FTSE 100? A complete nonsense. Um, it's still got a market cap of $2 trillion. Um, so to us, uh, it might be a good company, but the shares are overvalued. Um, so we, we just think that the tech share, the tech sector is still probably overvalued relative to the likely cash flow, um, and there's a lot more money if our view on commodities is right. I mean, we think copper, for example, nine thousand dollars a ton. That could get. There's no reason why that in four or five years couldn't go to forty thousand dollars a ton. Well, then there's a lot more money to be made in the big mining companies that make copper. Um, than there is in probably buying Apple or or, um, or Amazon. So I think it's a question of which industries are going to make the most money. And the the big mining stocks, as you point out, are all on really low ratings. They're cheap. No one no one can can argue that uh, uh, they're not cheap. And also with regard to UK equities, very interesting article by Hamish McRae in the Mail on Sunday last year. Uh, last week, sorry. And he's pointing out that the institutional holdings, U.K. institutional holdings of U.K. equities are their lowest ever. And he pointed out a couple of insurance companies, which were their total portfolio, are only holding 2 percent in U.K. equities, where, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, they were had 40, 50 percent. And this is one of the reasons why the London Stock Exchange is starting to sort of fade away a bit. Is that companies like Arm, when they come and anybody who wants to float in London, um, there isn't the, uh, you know, they can get a better price um, by selling their business in America because the, the equity market to a large extent in London. Hasn't quite disappeared, but it's a shadow of what it used to be. And I suspect there's going to be government governments are going to start to pay a bit more attention to this, change some of the regulations which forces these pension funds to have so much money in gilts, uh, and and start uh, veering them towards having a much higher proportion in in uh, in equities. A, it'll do better for the for the for their investment returns, and B, it might bring back the the, the Stock Exchange, London Stock Exchange. It's a bit more like its former self. And it'd be quite a healthy development. But so looking forward... Another reason for being quite bullish on UK equities, which are are cheap relative to international, is that the institutional holdings of UK can't possibly get any lower. And if you start getting the government involved and and changing some of the rules, a lot of those institutions are going to increase their weightings in UK equities, which is going to make some of these equities do potentially quite well.
0: That's a really interesting
1: thought. I think all we need to do is have a call of all the academics in finance first.
2: Well, I think the government minister is already – apparently there's a lot of going on behind the scenes with the, the, the government minister for the city having a lot of rounds with the Bank of England about this solvency ratios for insurance companies. And the Bank of England is trying to trying – to, say that you need higher solvency ratios for insurance companies and the insurance companies are saying this is this is hindering our uh, uh, profitability and growth plans and it looks like the government is siding with the uh, with the insurance companies so it's even gone up to the prime minister level where the is prepared to override any objections the bank of england might have um there are a lot of uh, reasons or given a lot of press about why Arm didn't choose to float in London and one of them was uh, some of the excessive uh, FCA regulations that don't apply if you go to New York and again this was a personal mission by Rishi Sunak to try and get Arm to float in London. So again I think the the government's going to be looking a bit more closely than it has done for the last few years about some of these regulations that uh, put London at a disadvantage. So again, it's. Uh, I, I think you know we we're quite positive. We think UK equity, especially these big mining stocks in the FTSE, are going to be seriously good investments over the next few years.
0: And with Rishi Sunak being ex Goldman's, you'd expect him to be market friendly, and it makes it makes sense. What's the point of Brexit happening and then us losing business to America? We need to be more competitive.
2: Well, that's that's absolutely right, and uh, I think. It looks like for the first time in years, um, the government is actually paying attention to what's going on in the city. And they seem to have, um, uh, in building it now into the uh, regulators, both at the Bank of England and at the FCA, that they almost like have a dual mandate. A is to regulate the system, but B, they've got to promote the competitiveness of London. And before, all all they've ever done is concentrate on regulation. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think it's uh, the, the, the sort of thing that seems to be happening behind the scenes um, is, is, is a positive for the London market, not a negative. It's
0: definitely got a lot more potential. And, um, and it's cheap
2: as well. So it's not like you're buying it on a hope pay. The trouble with tech shares is, you, you, you know, if it all works well, you're already paying a high price to, to get in your entry yeah. level. On terms of valuation, it's high. So if it all works out well, as you point out, the key variable is the price you pay. Uh, if it all works out well, well, okay, you might make a bit of money. But with them with these big mining stocks, you're buying them at very cheap levels, so you, you don't need everything to go right for you to make stuff. Because once the cycle turns and um, the momentum starts to starts to kick in. Um, you know, I think, the as I say, it's an asymmetric reward-risk play with a heavily reward side uh, in favour of the, the risk you might take.
0: I have a feeling that Tim is about to read my mind and mention cryptocurrencies. Um, that
1: uh, is a, that is astonishing. It's like Mystic Meg <laughs> in the room.
0: <laughs> what is your view on cryptocurrencies, Ian? I haven't got one. You haven't got one? Okay, <laughs> interesting. I thought this would be a binary thing. I thought you'd, I, I, <laughs> either you just say you just really like what you've got at the moment and you're going to stay within it or you'd say, yeah. you know, yeah, I think it's the future and we should get some get some, and put some risk on. Uh,
2: I mean, I, I don't think they're a store of value. People are trying to compare them to gold and I don't think they're anything like gold. I think the future is... But, again, um, I think the central banks are going to end up issuing their own cryptocurrencies. And this is one of the reasons why gold is potentially such a strong market at the moment, is because if the Chinese and Russians do get together and issue um, an alternative to the U.S. dollar, both as a reserve currency and uh, to do their trade-in, um, it might take the form of a crypto uh, currency backed by blockchain, uh, but also backed by gold. So all of a sudden you find potentially, and this is, you know, you've only got to look at the populations involved in BRICS. Um, it's easily 50, 60% of the world's population could be could, could be converted to this. But the only way to give it credibility is if it's gold backed. So, um I think that the private crypto exchanges, obviously, with what's happened with Young, Sam Bankman-Fried, and etc. I think if there's government alternatives, a backed alternative, especially if they're backed by gold uh, and using blockchain technology, you know, that potentially is the future. But um, it's not it's not necessarily crypto against gold. It's It's gold being used to back up and validate the the value of a cryptocurrency because cryptocurrencies on their own are not a store of value. That's
0: such an interesting view because what it also does is implies that the future for the dollar is not looking particularly good, which then ties into the metals prices going up and also Uh. it being positive for the stock market.
2: Yeah, there's a big cycle in the dollar that's due to peak any time now. And then, if the cycle analysis is correct, the dollar hits a major 10, 15 year bear market. Yeah. And again, that that fits in. Look at all the news. Um, US has put sanctions on, I don't know, how many countries all around the world 80, 90 countries all around the world. Well, if you, you know, they can only enforce those sanctions by the fact that the, 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 these countries trade in US dollars and those dollars get settled through the New York banking system, those countries went off and traded in something else, like this new Chinese-Russian gold cryptocurrency, the the US wouldn't be able to uh, enforce its sanctions. So, yeah. And then if the US even loses half The US dollar loses half its reserve status. Um, There's only one way that's going to go. This is no different to when the British Empire came to an end and sterling used to be the world's reserve currency. And once it started to lose it, um, sterling just went down every year, year after year, and potentially the same thing's going to happen to the dollar. There's a lot more dollars outside the US than there is inside it.
0: So that that must be quite a long cycle you're looking at, the US dollar. How, How far back does it
2: go? Um, some of these cycles go back hundreds of years. I mean, the dollar doesn't go back hundreds of years because it, it did not exist. But, you know, I used to be a member of the Foundation of of Cycles, and some of the stuff goes back. Uh, wheat prices was, with Congratia on the, on the 50-year cycle in wheat prices, that went back to the 12th century. Um, it doesn't mean that the cycle didn't exist before then. It just meant that there were no records kept. So a lot of these cycles, like the, there's an 18-year cycle in the property market, that goes back over 100 years. So these these things have been tracked, and they're they're not infallible, um, but they're quite reliable, and quite reliable is is, is enough to give you an edge. Exactly. Because,
0: yeah. And uh, sorry, I, I just didn't quite catch. You said you were a member of something cycles. I just didn't. I uh,
2: used to be. It, there was a it was set up by an American American government actually after the war called the Foundation for the Study of Cycles by an American called Edward Dewey. And it was a non-profit uh, organization, totally researched, not into making money. And uh, you could become a member of it. And it just did research into cycles and not just cycles in... Um, uh, Financial assets like property or shares or, or whatever, but also in natural things like, for example, there's a 9.6 year cycle in salmon abundance, 9.6 year cycle in the the, the water levels in the Great Lakes. Uh, there's also a 9.6 month over uh, the year cycle, sorry, in the gilt market. Um, so a lot of these cycles um, that appear in nature also appear in financial markets as well. And in weather as well, a lot of the a lot of the uh, uh, weather patterns are, are are driven by long-term cycles as well.
0: I was looking at solar, um, you know, the the yeah. uh, black spots, and that follows yeah. a very clear cycle, which a 11-year cycle, yeah,
2: sunspot cycle.
0: Yeah, and that 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 uh, I think it peaks around twenty-six, twenty-seven, which I thought was quite yeah. interesting, which I've yeah, never right. never looked at with the markets before um, yeah. until recently so i think that that's it's 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 very interesting when all these things kind of come together and then you, you they're kind of all pointing in the same way and giving you a very similar signal and on top of that i think if you look at sentiment out there it's all very very bearish and, and yeah, very but that's what you
2: want. That, that ticks another box doesn't
0: it yeah exactly
2: La- last thing you want is sentiment sentiment's an inverse uh indicator last thing you want everyone is bullish because all that tells you is everyone's long yeah Exactly, the contrary view. So what you want is negative, like these UK insurance companies. Um, you want you, you want to know where they're underowned, not where they're overowned.
0: Exactly. So you'll be selling out your holdings in the um, in in metals and metal miners, etc. When everybody's like printing them in the papers and saying how great they are, or potentially when other people tell you that they're really good investments.
2: Oh yeah, that's that's one of the things you have to be um, on top of and constantly looking out for is when the herd starts getting too bullish.
0: Absolutely. Cause... Well, we we look forward to that. Um, I, I <laughs> mind... that's,
2: that's a few years away, I think. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, well, hopefully, we'll have you on the show a few times before then. Um, okay. But uh, Tim, was there was there anything you want wanted to ask before we we start to wrap up? No,
2: no, nothing to add.
0: Okay. Um, Ian, was there anything we didn't ask you about that you'd like to mention?
2: Yeah, I think so. I, I think the sort of surprising thing was how much we're both on the same page, actually.
0: Yeah. No, it's fascinating. It's quite, Absolutely yeah. fascinating. It's really interesting to hear your views and, um, and given your experience in the markets. Um, it, it, it's uh, interesting to see how you put that together to To formulate your 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 investment plans, um, so
2: cycles cycles is the missing ingredient because that gives you timing.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I, and I you think you're really forward. gonna you're gonna like Akhil Patel's book when it comes out mm-hmm. um, yeah. it, because it's all about that, and uh, and he's been on the show a few times, but it's definitely worth listening. And the 18 year property cycle uh, has been obviously he's talked about that, and other people have talked about that. Um, Fred Harrison was one of the original uk economists who mentioned it but it's um, but it's uh, it's also interesting that people can even know about it but still uh it will still continue so i think i know what you were saying before about you prefer that people in the uk don't use cycles and they use them in america but i think even,
2: even when, I when, people... member, when i was a member of this foundation for the study of cycles uh george soros was a member of it uh stanley druchman was a member really? of it. really that's uh, interesting I Think Paul Tudor Jones was a member of it, it widely followed in America. And all the time, Soros used to make these amazing calls on the market. Oh, he's got in at the bottom here, got it. And we said, Yeah, it's, it's uh, he's got that from the foundation study of cycles because that got, is amazing. <laughs> that's the same research that we were getting, you
0: know. That is amazing. I always wondered why he was so good, and I always wondered. You know, if you'd known about cycle analysis going back to when he first started studying economics. And interestingly, he never talked about cycle analysis in any of his books.
2: Why why would you talk about it? I mean, if you've discovered the key to the safe, um, how to make a key that gets you into the safe, why are you going to tell everyone else how to make the key?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, there there is that. I I always think that um, even when people know they either don't believe it, they don't act on it, they act on it in the wrong way. It's it's like all the emotions that get together, but because you're an, you're you were formerly a trader and now you're a trade investment manager, you sort of understand the value of it. But okay. interestingly, you can tell people this stuff and they'll just ignore it. It's it's quite interesting.
3: Yeah,
2: but but again, he used a lot of uh, time cycle analysis as well, and again, he was a proprietary trader. Um, he used to let tidbits out of what he of what was forming his decision making. But you know, a lot of the secrets with Gan went with into the grave, you know. Yeah, I mean Gan was a human money making machine. Apparently, he had a win ratio of trades or something like 97 percent of the trades he put on all made money. Which is incredible, considering he ran really tight stops. He was a real disciplinarian for trading with very tight stops, which must imply that his tra- his timing on a lot of stuff was virtually impeccable.
0: Yeah, well, but he he definitely a, definitely used lots of methods.
2: There was, was a famous uh, 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 situation with Gann, um, which should be given to any academic who writes a random walk theory, because apparently he had a position in weak futures. And uh, his forecast was that wheat would, on a certain day, I don't know what it was, 11th of March or something, wheat would trade at $120 a bushel. And on the morning of the trade, it was trading at, I don't know, $97 a bushel. And people were coming up to saying, oh, Mr. Gann, you've got this one wrong. Um, you said it would go to 120 dollars a barrel a bushel sorry by the close of business and it's currently trading 97 and it's never traded more than 10 bushels in the history of its contract um you, you, you know you got looks like you got this one wrong and he said no it, I, I, it, it will trade 120 dollars a bushel because if it doesn't every all my work for the last 10 years is all is all been unfounded and people thought oh he's He's gone completely barking mad now. He's completely taken leave of his senses. And then uh, it appeared that someone who was short wheat, it was the last day of delivery on the futures contract, he was short wheat, couldn't deliver it. And guess what? In three hours or four hours, it went to $120 a bushel, not a penny more. And and, uh, So Gann used to be able to predict that a certain uh, commodity would trade at a certain price on a certain day. Well, if he can do that, that totally disproves the random walk theory.
0: Yeah, I think the whole investment community pretty much shows you that the ra- that random walk theory doesn't work. Because you, know, you it,
2: listen, to, yeah, you, because you we're listen not to all random. these journalists, and they all hang on it. Oh, the market went up today because of this news. It went down yesterday because of this news. What about an underlying trend? You know what?
0: Exactly. Exactly. It's 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 one of those things where, um, it's it's difficult to prove exactly why something happened, and that's where. That's where this random walk theory can, it can live in this area because it's it's you can't disprove it, which was something that Soros talked about with Karl Popper. He said, in order to have a theory, you have to be able to disprove it, and you can't disprove it, yeah. and that's why it can exist. But we know anecdotally that it, it it's obviously not correct because but we, you can't actually prove it other than there are people out there who make money. And then what they say to that is what they say to that is it Well, people who make money only make money because they there are lots of people who trade and therefore they're just the lucky ones it's like the coin flipping story i don't know if you've heard that one where you flip a coin and if you've got like a if you've got 100 people and you're in a coin flipping um competition or or monkeys lucky monkeys or whatever it might be by the end of it you'll end up with one person who's flipped say a heads you know seven times in a row and they'll say well that that's not skill. That's just luck. But what they don't oh, yeah. say is do it year in year out. The people who do it year start the competition again, run it twenty times, and see if the same person wins. And you'll find that they won't because that is random. But the markets aren't. There are people who consistently outperform the markets, and those that's what shows that the markets are non-random.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if, if the random walk theory. Gann could not have possibly forecast where a commodity is going to be on a certain date over and over and over again if the random walk theory existed. Yeah. And the fact that he's done it. So the fact that he's done it is completely, just one person on his own, completely disproves all this nonsense. And yet if you listen to the uh, financial TV on all these journalists, they're all implicit in what they say all the time. They're trying to explain every single market move and relate it back to the news event.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I've I've said before on the show that my uh, original introduction to markets was I used to keep a diary of of the market moves and I used to write what what was printed in the press. And what I found very quickly was, A, it didn't tally and b they would use the same reasons for why something had gone up for why something had gone down and it was always after the event and so but in many ways they are fulfilling what what is very much a requirement that people feel like they want to be informed they want to know every day why has this happened so they have to fill that void and so in, uh, whilst we know that that's not what you trade off, there's, there are occasions where there is information there and you can... But you have to really... There's a lot of noise in there that you've got to um, take out to find the signal. So, for example, something that you've said today about whether pension funds are going to be able to um, invest more in the stock market, or, sorry, insurance funds. Well, both, I suppose. And oh, well, if, pension funds and insurance yeah, funds, both. But, yeah. exactly. So if we see some, something in the news about that, we know... You know that's that's significant but the fact that you know powell said something and the market's moved down is is a is a post-fact explanation for why the market's moved and it also will be forgotten tomorrow and when the markets are rallying heavily they'll have forgotten all about
2: that and say oh that's not important anymore and so and he could come out on a Tuesday and say one thing and the market go up and he could say exactly the same thing a month later and the market go down. Exactly.
0: That's exactly it. So, you know, so look, Ian, it's just been such a fantastic pod with you. Uh, We're going to have to have you back on if you'd be willing to come back.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: No problem. Brilliant. Um, um, Just just before we go, um, a couple of things. First of all, we'd like you to explain, Give us your your uh, media handles, your sorry, your um, social handles, or where people can find you if they wanted to to drop your line. But before we do that, we like to do this thing called media picks, where we share a book, a film, or something that we particularly enjoyed. It can be financial related, but it doesn't have to be. Um, but it's uh, just just a, a way that we like to finish off the show. So perhaps to give you a bit of time to think of something, um, if I could ask Tim to give his. Um, his picks for this week, and then then we'll come back to you.
2: Okay. Um. Well, it, it, I'm on LinkedIn, so probably people can find me on LinkedIn or uh, Charters itself. I'm just going to. Mark's going to just let you know. Um, they're asking what social media they people can find us on. Okay. So. Uh, uh,
3: so uh, the company is on uh, Twitter at at Charteris underscore. The firm also has a LinkedIn page, uh, it has a Facebook page, and it also has a YouTube channel. Charles Treasury PM. All those links are available on the uh, company website. If you need the URLs, and what about this info at charles.co.uk? Uh, that is the uh, uh, company email. Uh, sort of uh, any inquiries that uh, can take uh, any inquiries that uh, visitors to the site have uh they can email in at info uh, charters.co.uk and uh that, that uh that correspondence will get uh passed through to uh to whichever uh, member of the team the uh, inquiry is uh, directed at and the uh, url for the uh company website is www.charters.co.uk
0: brilliant thank you very much really appreciate that we'll put links into the show notes um so we're just about to do our media picks round so tim what what are yours
1: i've got just one for this week um as regular listeners will know i lo- like my horror films to sort an absolute belter called nope n-o-p-e directed by jordan peele who previously people will probably know if they know it for a film called get out uh set in a set in a basically a, a ranch in the i think probably the midwest strange things start happening uh, involving horses and people disappearing and people dying mysteriously uh won't, i won't say anything by way of spoilers it, the first half is absolutely terrific slow build of tension and then like many of these things it's sort of sci-fi horror it slightly sort of falls apart once you, you start to get the big reveal but in terms of suspension and, and, and a slow build um this has a- aspects of closing cows of third kind signs even a film called uh, Evolution, uh, but it's called Nope. It's an absolute belter of a horror film, and I would commend it to anybody.
0: Great. Well, Ian, don't don't worry. If you don't, it doesn't have to be a film. It could be it could be anything. It could be a, a financial book, or or it could be a podcast. It could be any anything at all.
2: Uh, football match, yeah. Yeah, it could be a football match. <laughs> it was quite an interesting match uh, on Sunday uh, up in Liverpool.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. So we, rather, we, we, I, I mean, I'm, we're not Liverpool supporters, but we were a bit surprised to see a 7-0 win against Manchester United. So, Yeah. It was it was
1: just an off day, just an off day for the Manchester Indeed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Probably,
2: yeah. Indeed. But, as I say, we're not Liverpool supporters, but uh, I must admit... Um, I was thinking of watching the match and I thought, well, I won't bother because normally these games are hyped up and uh, normally turn out in a nil-all draw. I couldn't believe it when I saw the score. So Amazing.
1: It's, yeah. it's like when they say on the stock market, the stock market has fallen victim to some distress selling today.
2: It, yeah. We support Crystal Palace, so it makes our 9-0 loss at Liverpool a few years ago not, not look quite as bad now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, just just to wrap up, my, mine's going to be one that we've talked about. Before. actually, Heine talked about it. Uh, Beretta um, not long ago, saying that he was interested in watching it. It's the the Gold, which you you might want to watch it in on on the BBC. So sorry for our international listeners, um, but I'm sure you'll get it at some point. It's a series called The Gold, which is about the Brinks mat robbery. I thought it was really good. I really enjoyed it. It's it's a bit sentimental as well. It brings you back to the 80s and and you know, good old fashioned police or not so not so uh, good old fashioned policing but it was it was great so I, I i really enjoyed it so that's mine for this week but um look just to say once again ian it's been such a pleasure having you on thank you for coming on and um we'll put all your links in the show notes best of luck with the fund, and um we'll speak to you again brilliant all right then really enjoyed it thank you very much thanks chaps. thanks everybody thank thanks you. bye bye Bye-bye. thanks everybody this podcast is for entertainment purposes only please do your own research or contact a professional and advisor